Well, all right. Well, hey, my name is David. I have the privilege of serving with The Porch and our young adult ministry on Tuesday nights. And uh, we are continuing this series, Retold. Let me start like this. There's a common experience all of us are having right now. Those few of us that are here and everyone that is joining us, uh, you know, really around the country, but particularly in Dallas. And that is an inability to see something that could be present, but we're not totally sure. What do I mean by that? An inability to see if there are germs related to this virus that is spreading out and around us. This is going somewhere, by the way, not just PSA or getting my health, you know, medical perspective on things. In other words, every time that I go into the grocery store, I'm aware that, hey, there could be, you know, uh, germs or there could be the presence of this virus that is here, and yet I can't see it. Sometimes I find myself wishing that, you know, some of the officials or elected people who are making decisions, how awesome would it be if we could actually see, oh, there's the presence of germs that are there. But because we can't, we know that they may be there, but I'm unable to really confirm. I'm, I'm unaware. I know it's out there, and I know the you know, germs are spreading in its presence, or it's present in places, but I can't always see where it is, or how it's at work, or where it's going. I share that because I often feel in my own life this same way about God, that I know he's at work, and I know he's there, and I know he's doing things, but I just wish that I could see and trace his hand, see him working through just the pieces in my life and, and you know, the people around me and inside of their lives. While I know that he's clearly at work, I just always can't see it in the moment exactly how he is. The good news is all throughout the Bible, we're given indications and told uh, really reminders of things, how we can know how God is at work or some of the ways that he is at work. One of those reminders comes from the book of Ruth. We're in a series called Retold. Retold is, uh, the tagline is history everyone should know. And so we're tracing through stories inside of the Old Testament and New Testament, stories that everyone should know. And this morning, we're going to talk about the book of Ruth. You may have never heard a message in the book of Ruth. You're about to get one. We're going to fly through four chapters in the book of Ruth. It's a book inside of your Old Testament. If you have a Bible, you can pull it up on your phone and you can follow along. We're going to explore this story and be given two reminders of how God works, how you and I can see and know he's at work. So let me set up the book of Ruth. book of Ruth takes place in the Old Testament. Old Testament is about the nation of Israel and God's relationship with them. Specifically, when inside of the Old Testament this takes place is what's called the Days of the Judges, which is around 1300 B.C., but the days of the judges were the days where judges, not kings, were the leaders in the nation of Israel. Now, when we think judge, we think Judge Judy, but that's not really how they would have thought about judges. They would have thought, like, honestly, closer to like Clay Jenkins in our day, more of a regional leader that God would raise up to judge and discern the nation. The time of the judges was also the darkest chapter, if you've ever read the book of Judges, which is the time frame that Ruth, the book, takes place you're aware that it's one of the darkest chapters in the Old Testament. It's one of the darkest times in the book, or in really the entire Bible. And it's a time that over and over it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Ruth, many scholars, and really history tells us, was originally connected to the book of Judges. That they weren't two separate books. They were connected or at least placed right by one another. And some point along the way, people were like, we should distinguish these because the book of Judges is like so much carnage and horrific. It's like watching Braveheart. And then the book of Ruth is like this beautiful autumn love story woven together. And so someone was like, man, we should switch these. This is like the notebook and this is like Braveheart. We should put some separation in these. But Ruth takes place during those days. 
the second thing to know is we just set up where we're going to go, where this all took place. So it primarily took place in Bethlehem for the nation of Israel, and then there was the country of Moab. I think we even have a map that they can throw up where you can just kind of see Moab was not a part of, you know, the land that God had given Israel or was not a part of where God's people were supposed to live, but, but you'll see uh, what takes place there. And then there's our three main characters. So throughout the book of Ruth, we're going to go through four chapters. If you didn't get a quiet time in, you're about to get some Bible, people. And inside of this book, there's really three main characters. There's several other characters, but there's really three primary ones. There's a guy named Boaz, there's a girl named Ruth, and Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. When I read through the Bible, I begin to think through, like, man, who would be a person that, like, I would cast in this role if they were there? So I, I begin to think of, like, each person and who I would put in those roles. So just if you're following along to know the story, here's who I think of when I think of Ruth. Rachel McAdams, girl next door, pretty girl, she's there. She ends up, as you'll see, at the heart of the love story that's there. Then you've got to have the, the uh, suitor or the husband that's involved. He's, we're told, probably in his 30s, so, you know, this may not be the perfect one, but here's who I think of. Bradley Cooper, there he is. Bradley and Rachel, you know, they've got something going on anyways uh, in past movies. And then we've got the mother-in-law, who you'll, this will even make more sense why I would choose this person, but Maggie Smith, here's Naomi from Downton Abbey. Man, she looks regal. So those are our characters. We're going to dive in to how these three characters and the way that God is at work in their midst show us how God is always at work. So I'm just going to fly through the, the story. I'm going to play the movie, if you will. And then at the end, we're going to do two reminders of how God is at work in the next 25, maybe 30 minutes. So let me start in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. In the days when judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home because of that famine to go find food. And he took his family, and they went and lived in the country of Moab. Moab was not a place God's people were supposed to live. Uh, who lived in Moab? The Moabites. What do we know about the Moabites? The Moabites were people that God didn't want his people living amongst because they worshiped a foreign god, a god that required child sacrifice. So not exactly the best neighbors that you could have. But regardless, out of desperation, the guy picks up his family, and they move to Moab. Taking his wife and his two sons, the man's name was Elimelech. And his wife was Naomi, who's one of our characters. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. When they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. She becomes a widow. The two sons married Moabite women. One was a woman named Orpah, kind of an unfortunate name, and the other was named Ruth. About ten years later... Both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi all alone without her two sons or husbands. So the story starts of this man takes his family out of desperation because there wasn't any food. They moved to Moab, and he brings his two sons with him. They get there. They marry foreign women, which they weren't supposed to do, but God was still at work who was sovereign over all of that. And very shortly into their time there, Elimelech dies, and then after about a decade, the two sons die. And Naomi is left with Orpah and with Ruth. Now, this would have been tragic in any day. Like, this is tragic today if a woman loses her husband and then shortly after that loses her two sons. But in Naomi's day, this was as bad as it could get. There wasn't any sort of, like, you know, retirement fund or 401k. There was no 
uh, any ability to save over time. So Naomi, in that day, would have done what every person would have done, which is, hey, what's my retirement fund? Babies. That's how I'm going to make sure that whenever I get old, my kids are going to provide and take care of me. So she just lost everything. And she's left with these two foreign women who are still, you know, loosely connected, but not directly connected. She's in a foreign land. What's going to happen? We're told that shortly after that, she basically goes to the girls and she's like, hey, look, you guys, you're still young. You should go back to your homeland, go back to your parents, go try to get married again. Life doesn't have to be over for you. It's pretty much over for me. And I'm going to go back to Israel and back to my homeland. And she has this conversation with Orpah and with Ruth, and we're told that Orpah is kind of like, no, who's going to take care of you? And she's like, no, you need to go back. It doesn't have to be over. And Orpah eventually is like, okay, and she leaves. And she has the same combo with Ruth, and Ruth does something very different where she says, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to care for you. I need to protect you. Who's going to look after you? And she gives us one of the most beautiful lines in the entire book, really in the Bible, a line that you've probably heard if you've been to a wedding, and she says this. But Ruth replied, do not ask me to leave or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, Naomi, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if anything but death separates us. Incredible loyalty shown by Ruth to Naomi. Hey, wherever you go, I'm going to go with you, which would have come at an incredible cost to Ruth. Not only is she saying, hey, if you're going back to Israel, I'm going to come with you, and I'm going to care for you, But think about how that would have impacted her chances of getting remarried. Like, think about that, you know, girls that are in the audience right now, if you're single, or really, you know, wherever you are in life, think about how that would have impacted her chances of having another spouse someday. She goes and introduces, and all of a sudden, everywhere in life she goes, she's got Naomi, this older woman who's traveling with her, and she meets a guy, and the guy's like, whoa, who's this? She's like, oh, this is my former husband's mother. We're kind of a package deal. You look on Ruth's Match.com profile, it's her and Naomi sitting there together. It wouldn't have been the most like, oh, that's a really advantageous thing in her life, but she's saying, I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to provide for you. So they pick up, and they move back to Israel, and they end up getting in Israel, And we're told this, verse 22 of chapter 1. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the harvest. So they get back in Bethlehem. Probably have heard of that before, where Jesus was born. And it's at the time of the harvest. It's going to become important in a second. We're also told a few verses later that when they get there, people go out and they're like, oh, Naomi, man, it's been like over a decade. It's been a minute been a minute. How long had it been? We're not exactly sure, but somewhere around 10, maybe 11, 12 years. And the town goes out to greet her and say, Naomi's back. And Naomi, this is why I love the Bible. It's so honest. She says to the people in the town, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She plays off of her name. The name Naomi actually means sweet. And she says, man, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter because God has made my circumstances bitter because the pain of losing her husband and losing her children. But they get back in Bethlehem and they begin to set up shop and realize we got to figure out something because we don't have any food. We need to go eat. And luckily, it was the time of the harvest. So one day, chapter 2, verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the harvest fields to pick up stalks of grain left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. As it happened, 
she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. So who says your translation may have? She goes out to glean. What was gleaning? Gleaning was something that God established in Israel that was kind of the first welfare system that they had, if you will. In other words, harvesters would go through and they would glean and they'd pick up um, wheat and stalks of grain from the fields and anything that was dropped and certain edges of the field were not to be picked up because God said, I want to leave someone or I want to leave something for anyone who may not have food to eat. It's brilliant. God cares about the poor, still does, like he cares about everyone. And he built this into the nation so that they would have provision for people. So Ruth is in one of those situations where she's like, man, we don't have anything to eat. I'm going to go take advantage of, or I'm going to go uh, get access to food that God has made provision for by going into someone's field and hopefully finding some food that are there. Not just any field, we're told. She ends up in Boaz's field. Rachel McAdams ends up in the field, just so happens Bradley Cooper. There she is. And not only that, Boaz is not just any guy. We're told he's a family relative, that he was related. He was a cousin of her former, of her dead husband now, or of Naomi, Elimelech. So they're connected in their family. And then verse 4. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. And the love story is about to begin. And he greeted his harvesters. The Lord be with you. He said, the Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Clearly, Boaz was a liked guy. Because uh, think about what just happened. He shows up. People are out there picking up their corn or picking up grain. And he shows up and he's like, hey, the Lord be with you to his employees. And all of them pop out of their, you know, out of the stocks. And they're like, no, the Lord bless you. Think about if that was to happen in your work environment. Like clearly the boss is liked if he shows up and, you know, you're wherever you work. And, uh, and he shows up and he's like, hey, the Lord be with you. And everyone pops out of the cuticle and is like, no, the Lord bless you. But clearly Boaz was a liked guy. And then Boaz says, he asked his foreman. He notices there's more than just his employees in the field. Who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? This would be a translation of Joey from Friends going, how are you doing? Because she sees this girl that's not normally there, and he likes, as we're going to discover, what he sees. So he goes over to her, and he says, don't go to another field to glean. Come back here, and I'll give you food, and I'll protect you. And anytime you need something, you come back here. We're told he also like, invites her to a lunch. So we have our first date that takes place. So he goes over, and I love the detail because it says they have roasted grain and oil and vinegar. It's like macaroni grill. He busts it out, and she's like, oh, so how are you doing, and where are you from? And they're just eating there with one another, having a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he says, hey, I don't want you to just take this roasted grain and leave. I'm going to give you 40 pounds of food, and I want you to take it home and bring it back to your family. Ruth fell at his feet, verse 10 of chapter 2, and thanked him warmly and said, What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked him, I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and your mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you for what you've done. She asks, like, why are you being so nice? And he basically says, I heard how loyal you were to your mother-in-law. She goes home. she got 40 pounds of food. She gets back to Naomi. Naomi's like, man, this was a good day. What happened? 
And Ruth begins to explain to Naomi, I bumped into this guy named Boaz, and he was so nice. We sat there, and we had macaroni grill, and he gave me 40 pounds of food, and it was just incredible. And Naomi says, verse 20, may the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he's showing kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. This man, talking about Boaz, is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now, that word would have been really significant to any Jewish person that's reading this, but what's a family redeemer? Or you may have kinsman redeemer. Family redeemers were basically someone who was close enough in the family that God had a law that if a person died, someone that was related to them, a distant or person related to them, there were selected family redeemers who could marry the widow of the relative that had died in their life. Basically, Naomi's going, dude, this is not just being a nice guy. This is a potential suitor for you, girl. We got an option. This could be your one. This could be the person that God brings about for you to marry. This isn't just some Boaz. This could be your bow. This could be your Boaz. That's basically what she's saying. That this is not just any person. And she kind of goes into matchmaking mode, if you will. Anybody have like a mom or, uh, or someone in your family who like every time you're around them, she's like, so anybody new on the radar? And... Anybody that, you know, are you thinking about getting married? And that's essentially what Naomi's doing, where she's trying to play matchmaker. This isn't just any guy. This could be your guy. So basically, we're told that Ruth keeps going back every single day, back to the field, going back to get food, taking Boaz up on his offer that, hey, I will provide for you. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, I love this. It's such a crazy story. Naomi comes to Ruth, and she says, hey, I got an idea. Got the game plan, all right? If you can't seal the deal, I'll do it. She says, here's what I want you to do. And she begins to lay out, here's how we're going to tie this knot together. And she gives a plan. And she goes, first, I need you to take a shower, girl, because you smell. I don't want you to smell like the field. So clean it up. It literally says, I need you to clean yourself. Get ready. And then tonight, Boaz is going to be out sleeping with the harvesters in his barn. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to go all cleaned up, smelling good, into that barn. He's going to be asleep. Take the covers that he's sleeping on or covered with. Pull back the covers from his feet, and I want you to lay over the top of his feet. And this would have been a custom and somewhat usual or somewhat normal in their day. Side note, this is not prescriptive of anything that anyone here should be doing. In other words, if the biggest takeaway you walk away with is, huh, that's how the Bible says you get a man. That's not exactly the point that they're trying to make. It's just how this happened. So she goes. She gets ready. She's cleaning up. She's like, Naomi, are you sure this is going to work? Naomi's like, it's going to work, girl. I got you. She goes. Boaz is asleep. They pull the covers back. She lays over his feet, which startles him that night. And he, of course, asked what any of us would ask, who are you? As he wakes up in the middle of the night with this woman laying over his feet. I'm your servant, Ruth. She replied, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Beautiful, poetic language. Here's essentially what she's saying. Hey, look, if you like it, you should, put a, you should have put a ring on it. In the famous words of Beyonce, and I'm inviting you, if you like it, put a ring on it. And Boaz basically is like, all right, I'm in. And the love story continues. And then he realizes, man, I can't marry this girl yet. There's a hitch. Just like any good love story, there's a problem. The problem was there was a closer family redeemer. There was a relative that basically had first right of refusal to marry Ruth. So he had to make sure that he went to that other family redeemer and say, are you interested in marrying this girl? So he knows he's got to go off of that. So he goes to the guy we're told at the beginning of chapter 4. And he goes, and in my mind, he's got to be thinking, like Bradley Cooper is going, he's hoping to marry Rachel McAdams. He's got to be hoping this other guy who had first right of refusal 
please say no, please say no, please say no. But he goes, he explains the situation to this other family member. We're not told the name of the guy. And he goes, in, in my mind, he's like, hey, look, so this girl showed up, and uh, she's a little homely, and uh, if, technically, you have first right of refusal. I don't think I would do it if I were you, but, you know, I, I want to make sure that you, you, know, you know your options, and if you do it, you also get Naomi. It's a package deal. You want a bitter old woman in your life for the rest of your life? Is that something you want? And, and as he began to explain it, the guy eventually says, no, I'm not interested. That would come at too much cost to me. So Boaz, with a smile on his face and a twinkle in his eye, skips home knowing, I am going to marry this girl. So he gets home. They begin to have the wedding. The wedding takes place. And then in verse 9 of chapter 4, Boaz says this. You all, to a crowd gathered around, are witnesses today that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and Kilion and Malion. And with the land that I have acquired, and with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband, to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. So big moment in the story. Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the neighbor women, verse 17, said, Now at last, Naomi has a son again. They named the baby boy Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David. It's an amazing story. So much, if we had time, we could unpack and look at. But I just want to go quickly through two reminders that we see from the story of Ruth. It's a beautiful story, but it also involves incredible pain and challenges that came about. There's a famine, there's loss of three husbands. There's a woman that's so poor she has to take basically advantage of the food stamps of the day. And yet God was at work in the midst of all of it. First thing I just want to highlight as it relates to how can we see God at work or how does God work is the first thing that God is at work in the details. He was at work in the details of Ruth's story, of Boaz's story. He was at work over all the details that were taking place. He was sovereign over the fact that Boaz was still single when Ruth came by. He was sovereign over the fact that Boaz decided to marry her, and the unnamed family member decided, I'm not going to marry her. The God moves people's hearts. He's at work in the details. He's at work in the details of your life. We're told in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes or wherever he pleases. If you're a believer, you know that God is sovereign in the details of your life, and he's sovereign over the hearts of even individuals and people inside of your life. He's sovereign over where you work, over who your boss is, that field that she just so happened to pop into. He was sovereign over that. The phrase just so happened is repeated over and over throughout the book of Ruth. The author of it is clearly indicating like, and it just so happened because God was moving the pieces around in the story to bring about his plan. He's sovereign over your life. It feels random that you live in the city you do. It's not random. God placed you and he put you because God works in the details. Proverbs 16 verses 8 and 9 says, we make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. He's sovereign in the details. He's sovereign over you. He's at work in the details of how you were created, color hair you have, the height that you are, 
your marital status. That he formed and created and fashioned you. Psalm 139, verse 13 says, For you created, David speaking to God, my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's room. I'll praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know it well. God is not just at work in the details. God is at work when it doesn't look like it. This was clearly a time both in the nation of Israel where the judges, like I said, I mean, it's the darkest chapter in the entire Old Testament, chapter in the storyline of the nation of Israel. And yet God was at work the entire time, even when it didn't always seem like it or look like it. I mean, think about how Naomi's perspective was not that, hey, this is clearly a God thing. This is clearly God at work. This is not a story where you would read or if you were living it, you would be like, you know what? This clearly was a God thing. I moved to a foreign town or a foreign country I never should have lived in according to God. My husband while I'm there dies. My two sons end up dying. And now I'm left with these these women here. This looks like anything other than a way that God, that's clearly God at work. That's That's a God thing right there. And yet that's exactly what it was. Naomi didn't see it, which is why she said, hey, call me bitter because my life is bitter. She couldn't see that even when it doesn't look like it, God is at work, that he's moving the pieces around. He doesn't cause a lot of the darkness that comes in our lives because of the decisions that we make. But he is at work even when it doesn't look like it. He's at work when viruses spiral out of control, when chaos and divisions and things are taking place in our nation. And he's always at work. The first time the word hope is used in the Bible, do you know what it is? Ruth. The darkest chapter, the darkest time, and the first time we're told hope is introduced. God is always at work, even when we can't see it, even when it doesn't look like it. He was so at work over the famine, the desperation that moved him in Moab, all the pain, becoming a widow, all the challenges they faced. He was so at work that it would be through all those pieces, he would bring about the Messiah. He would bring about Ruth, who would have a baby named Obed, who would have a baby named Jesse, who would have another son named David, who would be the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. He's at work even when it doesn't look like it, even when we cannot see it. He's at work through every authority, every president, every government, everything is all underneath God's sovereign plan and power. Why would he not stop some of the pain or some of the evil in our world? Why wouldn't he stop school shootings or terrorism or epidemics of a virus? He's constantly stopping them. Every second that another virus does it spiral out of control or another shooting or another mass terrorist act doesn't happen, it's because God is stopping it from happening. He is. And for whatever reason, we don't fully understand, in his divine wisdom, he'll allow certain things that he doesn't cause, but he allows to happen. But it's not because he's not at work. But we are told that even when he allows those things to happen, he will bring beauty from ashes and good from any brokenness in the world around us. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says, God will make everything beautiful in its time. He's promised to make everything broken, be woven together. Every painful moment in your story can be used. And if you're a believer, will be used to bring about good. Specifically, Romans chapter 8 tells us it's the good of making you look more like Jesus. 
but he's working even in the most painful of circumstances, even when things feel bitter. It's not dissimilar to this. Like if I was to uh, offer to anyone in the audience, anyone here right now or anyone at home, like, hey, would you like some of the stuff that I have on the stage? Like I've got some flour, I've got some butter, I've got some sugar, I've got some eggs, I've got some frosting, Baking powder, reduced sodium, thank you for that. I've got some ingredients up here, and I've, I was to offer any one of it. Would anyone want these? Like, is anyone interested in a stick of butter? Anyone doing some bulletproof something? Anyone interested in some flour where you, you want to just take some and eat some? No, in and of itself, all these things would be bitter. I mean, you're not going to eat those unless you're, like, on Fear Factor or you're Gaston eating raw eggs. Right? Because we know it, it's gross. But when you take all those ingredients and you put them in the hands of a master baker, those same bitter ingredients make something incredibly sweet. Whatever bitter ingredients are in your life, or in my life, or in the circumstances around us, when placed in the hands of a master, not baker, but creator, he takes bitter things and makes sweet of them. Whatever circumstances you found yourself in, because candidly, I know Father's Day is a great day and awesome chance to celebrate fathers everywhere. It's also a really painful day for a lot of people. It's a reminder of the father that wasn't around. It's a reminder of the father of the husband that left. It's a reminder of the pain that a lot of us feel even when we think about a father. And I don't know where you are and what you're walking through and what challenges you're facing in life, but I do know When we take our life, we take anything that we're walking through and the circumstances we find ourselves in, and if we are willing to put them, all of those, into the hands of a master creator, he takes bitter things and he makes them sweet. He brings about good and beauty from ashes. He takes our pain and he attaches purpose to it. And he's both weaving the story and details of our life from a big picture level. And he also has invited us to say, man, bring those. Your story doesn't have to be done. If you're a single mom and you're wishing that you had a father that was present for your child, your story's not done. Your life isn't over. And God just says, man, will you bring your life to me? Trust me. I take bitter things and I make them sweet. I take a widow from a foreign land and I make her the great-grandmother of Jesus. I'm not done. I'm at work, and I'm inviting you. Will you put whatever you're walking through in my hands? And when you do, you've placed it into the hands of a God who makes bitter things beautiful, makes bitter things sweet. Ultimately, the story of Ruth points us not just to how Jesus arrived on the planet and how he came into the world, there's lineage. Ultimately, the story points to Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Well, first, because Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, he was walking one day with two of his disciples on a road to Emmaus, which is just a place. And he's walking with these two disciples, and he says, hey, guys, you know that everything in the Old Testament points to me? Everything. Every picture, every story, all of the prophets, all of the law, all of it was to point to me. And I wish we had time to go into all the different ways that God was clearly pointing to Jesus along the way. But for now, specifically in the book of Ruth, Jesus is saying, the book of Ruth points to me. Jesus, how does the book of Ruth 
points to you. It's about Boaz and a woman and Naomi. None of this seems like it's pointing to you. All of it is. Boaz is called the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is also called the Lord of the harvest, of a far greater harvest, not of fields of wheat and grain, but of mankind. We'll tell that Boaz goes out and he picks a person who was unworthy to be chosen. Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, goes out and he chose you and me and every person on the planet if they're willing to accept it, despite the fact we're unworthy to be chosen. The climax of the story involves a baby boy, Obed, being born in Bethlehem. The climax of the story of life involves a baby boy, Jesus, being born in Bethlehem. All throughout the story, it points to him. Boaz is called a redeemer. In order to be a redeemer, you had to have the right, like, hey, I have the right. I have the resources, I can pay for it, and I have the resolve, I'm willing to do it. Jesus is our redeemer who had the right because he owns and created everything. He had the resources, his own life he was willing to give, and he had the resolve, whatever the cost, I will do it. Every page points to Jesus, and the book of Ruth is no different. And Jesus is that God who takes bitter things, and he makes them sweet. And some of you, I just want you to hear me. If you walk away with this, whatever you're facing, whatever you're walking through, if you will put those things in the hands of a master creator, he will make sweet out of bitter. He will take beauty from ashes. He turns graves into gardens. He does it over and over and over, and he's invited us to trust him. He's at work, even when you can't see it. And to bring our lives and let him make a beautiful story with bitter ingredients. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the beautiful story of Ruth. How its beauty is found ultimately and that it points to you. You're our redeemer. You're the Lord of the harvest. You choose unworthy people. You take bitterness and you make it sweet. For anyone listening right now who is feeling the reminder on a day like Father's Day of how they failed as a father, of how they were failed by their father, of the decisions and the mistakes that they made that weren't best for their children or whatever they're walking through, God, I pray that you would meet them there with your grace and they would put their life, they would put their decisions, they would put their past, they'd put all those ingredients in your hands and you would make something sweet. That's what you do. You're the only one who can. Thank you for Jesus, our Redeemer, who gave his life so that we could have eternal life, forever with you and abundant life now. We worship you in song. Amen.